If the unborn is not a human being, then there's no justification is necessary for abortion. However, on the other hand, if, if the unborn is a human being, then no justification is adequate for abortion. Hey guys, I'm Bill Westers, and this is the Encountering Truth Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Encountering Truth Podcast, where we examine the evidence for Christianity, engage culture with kindness and conviction, and encounter Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Is it ever okay to take the life of an innocent human being? Is abortion morally wrong? The answer to this question all comes down to how we answer another question. One single question. And that question is the topic of today's episode. Now, before we jump in, to today's episode. Remember that one of the goals of the Encountering Truth podcast is to engage culture with kindness and conviction. We spent a lot of time so far talking about the other goals where we examine the evidence for Christianity and we uh, encounter Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But today we're going to focus on engaging culture and we're going to look at one of the hot topic issues in the current culture. Part of apologetics is dealing with cultural and social issues of what is right and wrong, good and evil. In fact, the passage surrounding the, the traditional apologetics verse of 1 Peter 3.15 has a lot to do with right and wrong and good and evil. And so I'll read that for you right now. In 1 Peter 3, verse 13 to 17, it says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So as you can see, that passage is all about right and wrong, good and evil. And when we honor Christ as the Lord, as holy... Above all, leading us to be zealous for what is good, it is for this very reason that we are told to give an answer for the hope that is in us. If Christ is Lord, if Christianity is true, then that will dictate our behavior in this world. What we stand for, what we rally against, what we vote for, how we live on a daily basis. 
So when we talk about apologetics, it naturally flows for us to start discussing these cultural or social issues. And so that's where we're going with this episode. We're going to talk about this cultural topic of abortion. It's a hot topic issue in today's society that really has a lot to do with right and wrong, good and evil. This is a very serious topic that is, has incredible implications on today's world. One of the most important issues of our time. So as I mentioned in the intro... That question of, is abortion wrong? Is it ever okay to take the life of an innocent human being? It all boils down to one single question and how we answer the question, what is the unborn? So imagine yourself in a situation where you are... uh, doing something, working on something, maybe doing the dishes in your kitchen or making dinner, and your child comes up behind you and says, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? What is your first question going to be? It's obvious, isn't it? Well, what is it? Before you give the go-ahead to kill something, you need to know what it is that your child wants to kill. If it's an insect... A bug of some sort? Yeah, go ahead, squash it, kill it immediately. We don't want to get bit by a mosquito. We don't want to get stung by a wasp or or bitten by uh, a spider of some sort. Kill it. That's okay. But if it's another human being, now we've got an issue, don't we? So it's an important question. What is it that is being killed? So here's the main thing. If the unborn is not a human being, then there's no justification is necessary for abortion. However, on the other hand, if, abor- if the unborn is a human being, then no justification is adequate for abortion. So we first have to establish what is it and how do we do that? Well, we can ask, is it alive? Okay, well, people might debate whether or not uh, when life begins. Now, science will tell you that life begins at conception. This is a scientific view, regardless of what many people want to believe these days. But it is actually scientifically uh, proven that life begins at conception. But regardless question is, is it alive? Okay, well, if they don't want to answer that question directly, then you can ask, is it growing? Because if it's growing, how can it grow without being alive? So the next thing is this, whatever it is that is alive and growing in the mother's uterus, we must ask, is it part of the mother's body because these days that's everybody wants to make it about the mother right my choice reproductive justice these are these are all euphemisms for murder essentially but we make it about the mother my choice my reproductive justice my body my choice and in my economic freedom my choice my privacy and in, in personal life It's all about the mother. However, if what is growing inside the mother's uterus is not actually part of the mother, then it's not all about the mother, right? It would be an 
something else. So how do we know if it's part of the mother? Well, look at DNA. If you were to examine the DNA, and if someone were to come in and do forensic science of some sort and, and take a, a DNA sample of the tissue growing inside the mother's uterus, they would find that it is different than that of the mother. So then it is not actually a part of the mother. In fact, you could even make the argument that the very existence of the placenta and the umbilical cord indicate that it is not part of the mother, that it is a separate being, a separate organism growing inside the mother's uterus. So the placenta and the umbilical cord actually separate it from the mother's body to make it be able to grow inside her uterus, right? Now, uh, what is it that is alive and growing in the uterus? It's, is it just a blob of tissue? Well, at what point does a human no longer become just a blob of tissue, right? We are all made up of tissues. So that's not a solid argument. Next, you know, you might ask, what is it? Is it oh, it's my offspring or a fetus or it's a zygote or the seed. What kind of offspring would grow in a human woman's uterus? What kind of zygote, what kind of fetus or seed would one find? A human zygote, a human seed, a human fetus or offspring. In fact, going back to the DNA, they could take a sample from that tissue, that fetus, and determine what kind is it? It is human DNA. Okay, so we can establish that number one, what it is alive and it's growing. It is not a part of the mother's body. And in fact, DNA can tell us that it is human. So now you might receive some pushback. Okay, but the idea here is that it is not okay to kill a defenseless human being for any of the reasons that abortion advocates or pro-choice advocates want to give for an abortion. Some of those reasons are, well, I have a right to privacy or the right to choose or maybe economic hardship or it's, it's complex or uh, it's a, the child is not wanted or forcing morality on someone else even because they remind, might remind us of a traumatic event in our life, like rape. If you apply all that to another defenseless human being, we can answer those questions. Okay? If someone were to be beating their two-year-old, abusing their two-year-old, as, oh, well, it's, my, I, it's what I privately do. It's, it's my my two-year-old, and or I had the consent of my doctor to do it. It's, I have the right. No, you don't, because it's hurting someone else. Economic hardship. When your two-year-old all of a sudden is becoming a little bit more difficult to provide for, or you lose your job as a parent and you still have your two children to pay for and to feed, is it okay to kill that child? No, it's not. Some might say, well, it, the child is not wanted. Can we kill a defenseless human being simply because we don't want them 
around? No. And would we ever punish a child for the sins of his father? I know that's a tough one for people to accept, but why should an innocent human being pay for the sins of the father, like rape? So we've established three different things. Number one, that whatever it is that's growing inside the uterus is, al is alive and it's growing. We've established that it is distinct from the mother. It is not a part of the mother's body. And we have determined that it is a human being. Now, that brings us to the meat of the argument. The moral logic for the pro-life position goes like this. Premise one, it says, it is wrong to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. Premise two, Abortion intentionally takes the life of an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is morally wrong. Now, you might get some more pushback about this. Uh, one of the common things today is that people will now start to say, well, it's not, it might be a human being, but it's not a person. And so we bring, get into this whole personhood argument um, and so the question is that you must ask, and they must answer the question, is what is the difference between a disposable human being and a valuable human person? They have to answer that question. So they might come up with a list, but where do you get that list? Who gets to decide what is on the list of what qualifies a person, someone as a person rather than just a disposable human being? What qualities are necessary to transform that mere human into a valuable, protected person? And what about the lists that exclude people? If, if different people or different cultures and societies, as have happened in the past, if they come up with their own list of what determines whether someone is a valuable person, human person, then what about those lists from the past that exclude certain people like black people or Jews or members of the LGBTQ community. And there's a number of others that we could discuss. What makes any one person's list or one society's or group's list of personhood qualities better than any other? There's a book by Nancy Piercy called Love Thy Body. It's an a fantastic book, um, and in it she has a chapter about abortion. In part of that chapter, she talks about this idea of personhood as it relates to abortion. Uh, and it, she has a section in that chapter where it says, Who's bringing religion into the public square? I'm going to read this quote from Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. It says, Today many people think, it is inappropriate to talk about rights endowed by a creator, at least in the public square. Why? Because in the fact-value split, when a position is labeled religious, it is assumed to be private and subjective, not shared by others within the polity. Ironically, however, by that definition, it is the, very, it is the secular view of personhood that should be barred from the public square. Though it claims to be scientific, in reality, it is private and subjective. 
listen to Yale professor Paul Bloom writing about abortion in the New York Times. The question is not really about life in any biological sense, he writes. It is instead asking what about the magical moment at which a cluster of cells becomes more than a mere physical thing. And what magical force has the power to convert a mere physical thing into a person with dignity so profound that it is morally wrong to kill it? That is not a question that scientists could ever answer. Bloom in tones. It is a question about the soul. So who's injecting religion into politics? Put bluntly, abortion supporters have lost the argument on the scientific level. They can no longer deny that an embryo is biologically human. As a result, they have switched tactics to an argument based on personhood, defined ultimately by their own personal views and values. And when their view is codified into law, their private values are imposed on everyone else. End quote. So the personhood argument doesn't work. There's no significant point at which one person crosses that threshold of non-person to personhood. There's no significant event. There's nothing that happens. This is, it's a matter, of a degree of development on a continuum. There are no set markers or milestones by which you can measure this. But we do know that life begins at conception. And so it, it continues to develop. Now, another very influential uh, tool that you could use here is what we would call the SLED test. S-L-E-D. Uh, this is a very powerful way to address someone um, with this argument for the pro-life position. What differentiates from the unborn to any other human being? The S stands for size uh, or physical appearance. Some might say, well, it's, it's different. It's much smaller. Okay. Yes. Well, it doesn't look like a human being. Well, sure it does. Actually, it looks exactly like all other human beings look at that phase of development. <laughs> every human being looks different at different phases of development, and every human being at that early phase of development is going to look exactly like that. You did. I did. We all have looked like that at some point. So that is exactly what humans do look like at that level of development and, and that size and that physical appearance and that phase. And so human beings are valuable regardless of their size or appearance. And you actually start treading into very dangerous waters when you start to say that, well, because it's not looking right or it's not the right size, that it cannot qualify as a human being of value. Otherwise, there would be no uh, defense against racism and ethnic cleansing. This is something that, uh, that Greg Coco points out in his book Street Smarts. The L of SLED stands for the level of development. Now, do human beings become disposable simply because they can't do what others can do? Just because someone is more developed than someone else, does that make them more valuable? If they are more intelligent, if they are bigger, stronger, uh, if 
they are more intellectually advanced or able to do certain things that others are not. No, they're not more uh, more valuable because of that. And, and someone is not less valuable if they are less intelligent or less uh, intellectually or physically developed. The E of SLED stands for environment, location. Does our value change based on where we are located at a given moment. To illustrate this point, let me tell you about my son. My son was born seven weeks early at 33 weeks of gestation. We had to go to the hospital and doctors tried to prolong it, postpone the labor and delivery, but it just, nothing was working. He was coming out. We were nervous, but at 33 weeks old of gestation, he was born at only about four pounds and six ounces. He was tiny. He had to be put in an incubator and be tube fed and have uh, the tubes in his nostrils so that he could breathe better. He had to learn how to suck, swallow, and breathe before he was released from the NICU, which, praise God, it was only an, he only had to spend nine days in the NICU. They were telling us that he could be in there a full seven weeks, just wait till just plan on the original due date, the day that he gets to come out. Well, it's by God's grace, he was only had he only had to stay in there for nine days. But let me tell you that looking at that child, that newborn baby, in that incubator, it is absurd to think that at 33 weeks, only inches away inside his mother, if he had been inside his mother's womb, he could have been legally killed by the same doctors that delivered him and saved his life. So by changing locations, to think that that has anything to do with intrinsic value of the image bearer of God, environment where you are, has no bearing on who you are and or on your value. Finally, the D of SLED stands for degree of dependency. Now, as Greg Kokel says in his book, Street Smart, he says, some devalue unborn human beings because they are not, quote-unquote, viable. They can't survive on their own outside the womb. Yet no baby is, quote-unquote, viable in that sense, since all depend on their mothers for feeding, whether via blood, like an umbilical cord, breast, or bottle, and for protective care. Human beings may be dependent on others for survival, but they are not dependent on others for value. Otherwise, all who rely on any kidney machines, ventilators, or even full-time nursing care are all disposable non-persons. So if degree of dependency determines worth, then all people who are physically dependent on others are at risk. So to recap, size or physical appearance, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency have no 
bearing on the value of human life. Does not matter how large or small or what your physical appearance is, it does not matter on the level of development because we are all at different levels of development as human beings. It does not matter about where you are, your environment. And it does not matter on the degree of dependency. If you are a human being, you are an image bearer of God. And you have intrinsic value that cannot be taken away. Now some people try to muddy the waters on this topic a lot. People will try to say, well, if you can't be pro-life unless you're womb to the tomb, uh, you can't be pro-life unless you are uh, pro-life in other ways and uh, offering all the support. Look, that's a whole other issue, okay? And nobody does it better than the church as it is, okay? So let's not talk about that. Let's not try to muddy these waters. Some might even try to go the route of saying, well, no uterus, no say. You're just a man. You can't talk about this stuff. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Would it matter if I were abusing my wife? Now, you might say, well, yeah, okay. Well, why? You're not married to her. Well, you're hurting another human being. Yeah, that's exactly my point. Now, one last thing. Let me be clear. This is in no way intended to bring shame on someone who has gone down this path, someone that has had an abortion. Maybe you're sitting listening to this and thinking, what do I do? I've, I've, done, I've been guilty of this. We're not trying to bring shame. We're trying to bring awareness. And that is the beauty of Christ, is that, yes, there is real right and wrong, but there's also real forgiveness. And so maybe you've shed innocent blood. I like it. I like to put it this way, that forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood requires the shedding of innocent blood. But thank God that that is exactly what he Jesus has done for you. There is forgiveness. He can forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness is what the Bible says. He's the God of fresh starts. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is redemption. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So whatever mistakes that you have made, in the past, it could be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness of sins. There is love and grace. All we have to do is repent, turn from our ways, and ask for forgiveness and choose to follow him and encounter Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Now, before I close, I want to share some helpful resources with you. Uh, and I'll also link these in the show notes for you, uh, for you to check out later. Uh, first of all, there's a few books that 
walk you through this and offer some helpful tips for making pro-life cases. I've actually mentioned several of them already, um, but one of them we've actually talked about on this podcast before, and that is Greg Kokel's book, Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. He actually has a couple chapters in there about abortion, and he gives uh, even gives some sample dialogues to help you navigate some meaningful conversations about it. Very, very valuable book. Uh, another book is Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality by Nancy Piercy. A very good book. Uh, a little bit more challenging to read, but it's an outstanding book when it comes to uh, issues in today's society. Finally, Scott Klusendorf is the president of Life Training Institute, uh, and he's also written a book called The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. And you can find out more about him uh, and Life Training Institute by going to prolifetraining.com. So thank you guys for listening. This is an incredibly important topic. So get out there and engage the culture. And if you found this episode helpful, make sure to share it with your friends, post it on social media. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe and click the bell icon to get notified about our new episodes. And finally, check out our website, EncounteringTruth.org, and follow the Facebook page as well uh, to keep up with everything going on. we got to get those algorithms going so we can reach more people. So remember, let's make it our goal to examine the evidence engage culture, and encounter Jesus. God bless. We'll see you next time.